This evening's talk will be on the theme of what are we doing? And I'd like to start with a, um, a story. Once there was a lion roaming free in the jungle, just living a, a life as a lion, doing what lions do. And then, for this lion, suddenly one day, the lion awoke and found itself in a large enclosure with a lot of other lions. And it seemed that there was this very tall and impenetrable fence around the enclosure. The lion was puzzled by this. It had no previous experience of anything at all like it. But when it went up to any of the other lions and sort of said, well, hey, what about this fence? They all seemed very, very reluctant to talk about it. In fact, they tended to ignore him, give him the cold shoulder. And these lions in this vast enclosure seemed rather busy. They were engaged in sort of heated political discussions or pursuing interesting sporting endeavours and some of them were eating on the plentiful eating the plentiful supplies of antelope that were available to them. But whenever he mentioned, whenever this lion mentioned something about the fence, immediately no one none of the other lions wanted to know him. And he went through this through this area, this bounded enclosed space for some time. And as he did, he started to notice there was a, a sort of a, a lion who looked a bit different amongst all the others. And this one looked a bit sort of scraggly and unkempt and he wasn't quite so well fed. But he seemed interesting because this lion wasn't doing what all the other lions were doing. There was one lion there who wasn't engaged in all these apparently diverting activities. And so the, the lion, the first lion of our story, went up to him and said, you know, uh, what about the fence, you know, expecting to be snubbed and turned away. But the lion he spoke to, the older lion, looked at him and said, ah, you want to know about the fence? He said, well, it's good that you've come to me, because all the other lions here, they're afraid of me. None of them would like to, no, none of them will talk to me. And they're afraid of me because I do not join in their activities. Because I see that what they are doing is a waste of time and a distraction from what is important. Please stay with me if you wish, said the old lion. Do not be pressured into joining the others. For there is only one truly important endeavour in this place where we find ourselves. In this situation, the only truly important pursuit is to investigate and to understand the nature of the fence. So what has happened? Here we are in a body with a mind. We're born without asking to be and we will die at some time 
we have only that certainty and we don't even know when so what do we do finding ourselves in this incredible situation well we are exposed to a world in which we are very quickly taught to seek satisfaction outside of ourselves to seek it through pleasant experiences and amongst the very first and very formative experiences the the pleasure of other people's appreciation pleasing others particularly family when we're infants friends and having social expectations to conform to receive other people's approval we're encouraged and taught to spend our lifetime pursuing what we want and avoiding what we don't want and what we want tends to correspond with what we find pleasant and that which we don't want corresponds to that which is unpleasant and it actually sounds quite good really I mean why not why not pursue what brings pleasure and avoid what brings pain there can be an unquestioned assumption that this is the way to happiness and satisfaction but this however presupposes that we can control our experiences that is the objects in the world which we have contact with that we in fact have the power to gain and keep whatever we want and get rid of and avoid whatever we don't want and we then define freedom as the power to control our experiences power and control being an approach to a world that we view as on the one hand there to be exploited by us to satisfy our desires and on the other hand from which we must protect ourselves and defend ourselves but we are born and will die experiencing pain and loss on the way no one is exempt from these experiences we cannot actually control these most fundamental aspects of our existence and there may indeed be joy and love and true and deep happiness in our lives but it's not necessarily available when and where we want it and we have no guarantee that when we do have it it will last it's all liable to come to an end but in spite of this the constant message from our culture is to seek happiness through the accumulation of what we want and the avoidance of what we don't want and when we live this out what happens? some experiences we enjoy and seek more of driven by the force of I want we attempt to fix and hold the things we desire and we even start to feel that we can't cope without them this is attachment closely followed by dependence but by their nature we cannot hold on to them for they change or come to an end as all things must but the I want cries out for gratification so we try to placate it not understanding that it is not the absence 
of the desired which is intrinsically so difficult. But in fact, the sense of neediness and that inner crying out that is so painful. This is seen in how easily we can want something desperately, which we didn't even know existed until we saw an advertisement for it. But suddenly we want it. And if we are unable to get what we want, the desire becomes unbearably acute. I can't cope without this thing that we wish for. Similarly, for the unwanted experience, we begin to live in fear of it. The ego mind cries out at the prospect, let alone the presence, of that which it doesn't like. And the common response of attempting to avoid having contact with the object is not really going to make a difference. Because it is in fact the experience of not wanting that is so difficult, not the presence of the unwanted. Now there's a, a nice Zen story which illustrates the, um, or at least one of the effects of our incredible attachment to our desires, to the pleasant and the comfortable. There was a Zen monastery where this student wished to study and he, he came up to the monastery and was told the, the rules there. And the rules went like this. You practice for a year, non-stop, then you have your first interview. And you have two words in your interview and that's it. So after the first year, the student practiced diligently and came for the interview and the Zen master said, okay. And he said, bed hard. The Zen master looked at him and said, no, go away, you need to practice some more. And so he practiced hard for another year and came back and he had two words to say again. The Zen master looked at him and he said, food bad. And the Zen master looked at him and said, no, you've still got something more to learn about your desires and attachments. So he went away and practiced for another year and came back and the Zen master said, well, you've got two years, um, practice here now and two words. What have you got to say? And um, the man looked at him and said, looked him straight in the eye and said, I quit. And the Zen master said, I'm not surprised, you've done nothing but complain since you got here. <laughs> but looking more closely at the process of the development of desire and attachment and aversion and fear, it's important to see what's actually happening. In our mind, we have the tendency to isolate a particular impression from the totality of our experience at a given time. An expression that is pleasant or unpleasant, usually, and we highlight it and focus on it, and our mind contracts around the experience, dwelling on it in our thoughts. And with the dwelling, we return to it again and again, and the context and the totality of the experience is completely lost in that dwelling. The pleasant or the unpleasant aspect of the experience assumes a solidity and a substance and an apparent reality which appears to be independent from the process 
which is given at this appearance, this process of dwelling on that particular aspect of experience. And then, the mere idea or thought of the experience from the past starts to carry a weight which the actuality, the real experience at the time it happened, never had. And this weight is carried into the future as desire or aversion. And then we can be beset and even plagued by a mind that seems constantly in the grip of either fear or desire or both. We find ourselves driven from one object to the next, desperately seeking the end of the wanting mind. Somehow, somehow <coughs> still believing that if we get what we want, we will be satisfied not understanding that so long as what we want is governed by an unconscious process which arises from our contact with the world, there will be an endless succession of wants and not wants, an endless succession of craving and of fear. Are we bound to mortgage and invest the quality of our life and our happiness with whether or not our experiences are pleasant or unpleasant? Are we bound to make that the touchstone for the quality of our life? And we really need to ask, I feel, does the model that we get from our culture and from our conditioned minds, the model that happiness is found through the accumulation of the, of the pleasant and the avoidance of the unpleasant, does it actually work? I think we need to ask this question. And the only time to ask it and to look for the answer is right now. Any promise of happiness in the future is empty because we may not make it that far. We cannot rely on a future. Anything that lies outside the present moment which we are in because we have no guarantee our life will last that long. This is something that was brought home to me very very powerfully when I was working in a high-powered law firm in big city, for New Zealand anyway, big city Auckland. And um, I knew that I wanted to do something different with my life, but I hadn't quite made a change. And my best friend from school died quite unexpectedly. Surgical mishap. didn't have to happen, but it did. And it was a very sad time, but there was an immense gift in it for me because I guess the last thing my friend gave me was a, a very powerful experience of the unreliability of this life. The fact that if we wish to live, we have to do it now. And we can't say at any time, well, I'll do that later. I'll live what I believe. I'll do what I truly want to later. Because later may not exist. And I was recently in America and talking with a, a teacher there, Gavin Harrison, who is HIV positive. And he talked about his diagnosis five years ago and living with death as his companion as his potential 
immediate experience. It could happen to him. And he talked about how many of his friends who said, oh, that's really sad, had died before him in the five years. Not many, but some friends, just from other causes. And so for some of us it's easy to see our mortality, but for all of us it's very much a reality. So when we ask ourselves, is what we're doing, is how we live our life truly satisfying? There is some immediacy to find an answer. And we maybe also have to be careful to see, because sometimes we can collude in a, what can be called a collective deception as to whether our lives are really satisfying. And for me, again with a a personal experience, when I was a a teenager in a sort of small country town, the, the main social activity was drinking and getting drunk. And I remember it struck me at some point in that period of my life that we spent a lot of time in that particular drinking environment telling each other what a great time we had last time we did this and what a wonderful time we were going to have the next time we did this. And somehow we were sort of pretending that actually at that moment we were having a good time, but we weren't. And we weren't really the last time and we didn't really the next time. But sometimes in our lives I think we can do this. And we need to be careful to see if we are. And so back to the question. Does the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain lead to happiness and deep satisfaction? To answer truthfully, no. To acknowledge that the model we have been given is false is not easy, but we may have no choice. And when we see that, then perhaps we turn away from the material world as the source of our satisfaction. Its unreliable and changing contents are no longer given the power to govern our happiness. And we see that. And we seek to find our happiness within what we call ourself. That which we think is truly and intimately ours. The inner life of feelings and thoughts. But what can often happen is that our materialistic tendency towards acquiring and avoiding external worldly objects and experience in the material world, that tendency becomes one of grasping and rejecting amongst the objects of our inner life. The movements of our mind and heart, which we label good and want, or those which we label bad and do not want. And then we define our happiness in terms of whether we are having the inner experiences that we wish to have and avoiding those that we do not wish to have. And we now define freedom as the ability to choose and control our inner life. But is it really any more amenable to our choice and control? We feel that it must be, for we think It is what we are. We are identified and bound up with the content of our inner life as being me, as who I am. Yet in meditation, one of the first things we discover is that we cannot control our inner experience. Our mind doesn't do what we want it to. 
Our emotions do not follow the pattern we would wish for them. If we are told to pay attention, or we tell ourselves, ask ourselves to be mindful, to be present, and yet the mind wanders. And we want to be filled with bliss, and yet sometimes we feel anything but. In seeking satisfaction in the contents of our inner life, it may at first appear that we are not looking outside who we are but we can no more control our inner life than we can control the world. It too is subject to change and unreliability. When I travelled in Asia, one of the things I sought to do, I remember quite intentionally, was to work out some of my inner conditioning. and. Um, so I would go and do things which I was really frightened of so that I wouldn't be frightened of them anymore. And amongst these things were to go to a place where no one spoke my language, where there was no one I knew, no one to speak to, no form of social contact or support. And I did this for some time. And In fact, I got so I wasn't frightened of it at all and thought, gosh, great, I solved that one. And then I thought, well, I can go on to something else now. But what I found after one period of staying in one place amongst friends and familiar situations that when I contemplated going out into a remote and difficult place again none other than my old fear and it struck me quite powerfully that gosh what's in here isn't that reliable either it, it changes as well I can't just cultivate something and expect it to be there forever And when we look inside at this changing mass of experience, of inner experience, something else we discover, if we haven't already, is our ego. And it's not always a welcome discovery. We hear this compelling inner voice that demands and complains, that fears and that desires, and that seems to have so much power. And that seems to somehow prevent us from making our inner life into what we would like it to be. Now, our conditioned response to this is to try and make that voice be quiet, to go away, because we don't like it. But in making any experience the object of aversion, by dwelling on it, we give it power, and the opposite effect occurs. The ego doesn't let go. In fact, it holds more tightly to control, to desires, to fears. So in a very fundamental way, we are faced with our inability to control the contents of our experience, whether it be our experiences in the world, the people and the things with which we have contact, or the thoughts and feelings which move through our inner life. No security or reliability can be found on which to hang our happiness and quality of life. Seeking to develop the capacity or the ability to control our experience is not really going to be of deep use to us or great use to us. 
And I'd like to tell another story to illustrate the importance of developing that which is truly useful. Once a scholar decided to go for an ocean cruise and hired a small boat with a crew on it. And while they were out on the, on the ocean cruising, far, far from land, for quite a few days, the, the old scholar would question one of the sailors, this sort of weathered old sailor. And he, he would come up to him and say, Tell me, sailor, have you ever studied oceanography? And the sailor would look at him and say, No, no, I've never done anything like that. The scholar says, oh, You've been wasting your life. You've wasted a quarter of your life. And the, the sailor was rather sad and went away. The next day the scholar came up and said, Tell me, sailor, have you ever studied meteorology? Have you studied the weather? And the sailor said, No, no, I haven't actually, no. And the scholar says, Oh, I'm afraid you've wasted half your life. And the sailor, rather sad, goes away again. And on the third day, the scholar comes up and says, Tell me, have you studied astronomy to chart your passage by the stars? And the, and the sailor says, mm, No, I don't, don't know anything about astrology, actually. And the scholar says, well, Look, my man, what are you doing? You've wasted three quarters of your life. And on the fourth day, the sailor comes running up to the scholar, rather excited, and says, Sir, sir, have you ever studied swimology? <laughs> and the scholar says, Swimology? What do you mean? She says, Can you swim? No, no, I've not had time for that. It's, I've been too busy studying. And the sailor says, Oh, it seems you've wasted all your life because we're thinking. So what can we do? What can we seek to cultivate and develop that will be of true use and benefit to us? And it seems to me that a critical shift is necessary. That we must let go of our fascination for the content of our experience and be much more concerned with how we are relating to that experience. What is the quality of our relationship to that which occurs in our inner and outer lives? And what is the process by which that relationship is formed? Can we learn a new way of forming relationships with our experience of connecting with all that life brings to us without picking and choosing? When we are not present in the moment of experience, then our conditioned reactions of desire for the pleasant and aversion to the unpleasant, and disinterest in the neutral or neither pleasant or unpleasant experience. These conditioned reactions are unquestioned and we follow them. But when we are present in the actual moment of experience, we have a choice. We can follow the conditioned reaction or we can just be still. Excuse me. The power of conditioning must be acknowledged, but we do have a choice. It may not be easy to cease following that path of habitual reaction, but if we are to live an authentic and satisfying life, 
then the pursuit of ease can no longer be given the highest priority. If we can be still inwardly in the face of our conditioned responses, then we create space for understanding and wise action to arise. I'd just like to read something to you. It's, um, <coughs> from Lao Tzu. The ancient masters were profound and subtle. Their wisdom was unfathomable. There is no way to describe it. All we can describe is their appearance. They were careful, as someone crossing an iced over stream, alert as a warrior in enemy territory, courteous as a guest, fluid as melting ice, shapeable as a block of wood, receptive as a valley, clear as a glass of water. Do you have the patience to wait till your mud settles and the water is clear? Can you remain unmoving till the right action arises by itself? The master doesn't seek fulfillment. Not seeking, not expecting. She is present and can welcome all things. Through cultivating attention and our capacity to be present with what is, irrespective of the contents of our experience, then we are no longer giving support to the voices of fear and desire. Then we can begin to understand the real possibility of happiness and satisfaction in this life. True happiness is born of understanding our experience not manipulating it. And to be present in an, in an intimate, continuous and unreactive relationship to our experience is the very soil in which that understanding grows. Nothing needs to be changed. Every experience offers the same possibility for learning as any other. Each moment is pregnant with the potential for insight and it asks nothing more of us than to be there. And as we look and listen we perhaps begin to sense that our experiences are not so different from each other as we once believed. Seeing, hearing, tasting, body sensations and mental activity. All of these are bare experiences. And that which is pleasant is just pleasant. That which is unpleasant is just unpleasant. Neither of any deeper significance than any other. When we are no longer compelled by our reaction to the pleasant and unpleasant 
feeling quality of certain experiences. We no longer isolate and highlight one at the expense of others. And we stop experiencing such a big difference. We begin to understand that this difference is something that is constructed, that arises from a process which we are not obliged to participate in. And seeing the results of that process, we have no wish to participate in it. And as the sense of difference recedes, we open ourselves to being touched by an intuitive sense of mystical unity, of a common and constant factor and thread through which all of our life and all of life itself is woven. I just like to read one thing more. is from Sing Chan. The great way is not difficult for those who are unattached to their preferences. Let go of longing and aversion and everything will be perfectly clear. When you cling to a hairbreadth of distinction, heaven and earth are set apart. If you want to realize the truth, don't be for or against. The struggle between good and evil is the primal disease of the mind. Not grasping the deeper meaning, you just trouble your mind's serenity. As vast as infinite space, it is perfect and lacks nothing. But because you select and reject, you can't perceive its true nature. Don't get entangled in the world. Don't lose yourself in emptiness. Be at peace in the oneness of things. And all errors will disappear by themselves. For the mind in harmony with the way, all selfishness disappears. With not even a trace of self-doubt, you can trust the universe completely. All at once you are free, with nothing left to hold on to. All is empty, brilliant, perfect in its own being. In the world of things as they are, there is no self, no non-self. If you want to describe its essence, the best you can say is not to. In this not to, nothing is separate, and nothing in the world is excluded. The enlightened of all times and places have entered into this truth. In it there is no gain or loss. One instant is ten thousand years. There is no here, no there. Infinity is right before your eyes.
So here we have an opportunity in this time together to explore what it might mean to live and to be in this world in a different way. A way in which we don't make our preferences our priority. A way in which through being open to all things we create the conditions to be touched by all things and in that touching understand that which we seek to understand May all beings see the emptiness of distinctions. May all beings live with acceptance. May all beings abide with wisdom. So could we sit quietly together for just a couple of minutes, please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.